The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. This Thursday at 6 p.m. is going to be the official launch of the latest Jonathan Ball book by Anton Harbour. So for the record, it's behind the headlines in an era of state capture. And this is a, an absolutely fascinating read. I was very fortunate enough to get a copy some weeks back from Jonathan Ball Publishers, and I was able to read through this, and it was quite astounding. Anton, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Chad. And um, what you haven't mentioned is that you're in the book. Well, full disclosure to our listeners, yes, I am in the book. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting seeing one's name in print, especially in respect of the subject matter. So let's just get right down to it. Um, you started this investigation into an industry that you are so very much involved in, not just as a, a very well-known investigative journalist who was involved with the, the creation of such important um, titles in the past that actually took us through the end part of apartheid into the new South Africa, but you're also a, a professor of journalism, and more importantly, you also headed up the, the 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 awards for 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 investigative journalism in South Africa. So I can imagine why you 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 undertook this journey. But the question is, what did you discover? Because everybody's hearing the headlines of an era of state capture and and the role the media played. And I want to get to the crux of it. What did you uncover? Okay, so let me say first that that thank you for your kind words. I've got 40 years in journalism, so I'm just starting to get the hang of this. But it did bring me a rare insight into into the best and the worst of our journalism um, over this period. And 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 that is what I tried to highlight. There was some great journalism uh, that helped that helped stop the uh, spread of state capture and notably through the Gupta League stories, and there was some terrible journalism, some institutions that were captured, but my detailed look is into what happened at the Sunday Times, um, where they wrote a series of stories, which they had later to apologize and retract for, but which uh, I think in short aided state capture and um, ensured that certain key civil servants lost their jobs uh, because they didn't go along with state capture. And I really probed into why this was the case. Um, and I tried to answer it at many levels. Clearly, there were journalists who who got it wrong and who persisted with an incorrect story or stories uh, over months and years. Clearly, there was a practice in the Sunday Times, a journalistic practice and ethic and culture, which allowed that to happen, even encouraged it to happen. And that is a deep, deep problem that I try to come to understand. But it's also a problem of our media at the moment where there's huge financial pressures, meaning shrinking newsrooms, um, and therefore pressure to uh, push sales and do dramatic stories um, that led them down this path. So, uh, and, and, and then there were attempts by state security agency and the tobacco industry and others to deliberately mislead um, journalists and newspapers and so these these uh, false stories so anton we're going we're going to break down a little bit later in the show what what your understanding is of the role that the journalists played 
But I think it's very critical to, to take away something that you just said, and that is that we're going through a change um, globally where people still need to be relevant as journalists because news is breaking at people's fingertips via Twitter, Facebook, and other social media tools. Do you think that this is a, is a major um, contributor towards people perhaps not fact-checking as thoroughly as they did in the past so that they can be the purveyor of news as quickly as possible? I think there isn't as much fact-checking. One, because you're quite right, social media moves uh, what used to be a 24-hour and then a 12-hour and then a three- or four-hour news cycle is now a, about a 15-second cycle. So social media has speeded up uh, news so fast that fact-checking uh, often comes second. Uh, and it's also because of the financial pressures that newsrooms have shrunk. So there's less sub-editing, less double-checking, um, fewer hands and experienced hands to keep an eye on stories and young journalists. Absolutely intriguing, and I think it all contributes towards a perfect storm. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to chat more about the perception of the public of what the fourth estate actually is and how, in fact, um, sometimes subjectivity trumps objectivity. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm chatting today to Anton Harbour about his book, So For The Record. And this book is an intriguing read, especially when one considers what's happened the past couple of years, especially with regards to some of the biggest stories that have broken in South Africa. And the conversation we're having today and something that I, I wanted to take up with Anton prior to us taking a break was the public's perception of the media. So, Anton, we always refer to the fourth uh, estate, and we believe that the fourth estate is this objective medium that's out there to give unbiased views. But when one looks at the likes of the American media, when one looks at their television networks like Fox, which are Republican in terms of their reporting, CNN, which seems to come across as Democratic in terms of their reporting, can one say that the media is truly objective? No, I, I don't think uh, objective uh, uh, it is, and I don't think one should use that criteria. Um, we all have biases, we all have prejudices, we all have assumptions, we all have beliefs, and uh, even uh, as we try, we have to acknowledge that those exist rather than deny them. Um, but the critical thing is to be fair and balanced and open-minded. So I think the the, the the tragedy we have with the Fox News type outlet is that they go in with predetermined views and don't hear other views. And that's precisely what happened at the Sunday Times, is that they had a view of what the story was, even if it was contested and there were counter narratives and other people arguing there was another story that they were missing. Um, they were close to it and they stuck with their one story and that's why they ran into trouble. To do good journalism, you have to be open-minded. You have to accept that there isn't one story, one narrative. There's conflicting views. There's multiple versions. And you have to be able to take and assess those in a professional way with balance and reason and evidence um, and an open mind. And that's the essential part. I, I mean, it's interesting that you raise America. You know, the, the, the phrase fourth estate comes from um, the era just after the French Revolution, when uh, they had three estates of government and uh, somebody stood up and said, that lot up there in the press gallery 
uh, is the fourth estate because they're, they're, they're essential to our democracy in that they keep an eye on the other three estates. And that's where we got this notion of the media as, as key in a democracy to keeping those in power accountable. Um, and that falls apart when you have a Fox News attitude or the attitude that I describe at some of the newspapers here, particularly during that, uh, um, um, that era. Um, we have to ensure a, a, a professionalism in journalism that doesn't lead you um, down those uh, dark holes and keeps you open-minded and accepting complexity and conflicting versions um, and not being partisan. So tell me more about the South African context, because we're hearing now specifically from you that the Sunday Times gave not a warped view, not a subjective view, but a totally incorrect story, a story, and, and, and we're not talking one story, we're talking many stories that, that you find to have been false, and in some instances they've been retracted. Is there a reason for this? What was the agenda? Was it journalists looking for prizes, looking for scoops, or were journalists captured? Um, on an individual level, when I look at the journalists involved, I think there's a mix. Um, I think there were some who just um, uh, went down the wrong path. And, le and let me say this, for at least some of the stories, um, such as the Cape Town um, death unit story and the uh, illegal rendition story, there were stories there. There were important human rights stories there that needed to be told. But the story they told distorted them completely. Um, I think that some of the journalists involved were, were just got it wrong and were arrogant and were not were and their editors did not redirect them and make them rethink um, and, uh, and 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 clarify the position. We ha you have editors who accepted and who promoted one point of view as opposed to saying to the reporters, "But what about all these other things we're hearing and reading in other newspapers?" Um, how do we account for that and how do we deal with that in our stories? We can't just ignore them. But there were also some journalists that may well have been corrupted. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, the tobacco industry, for example, and the state security agency were deliberately setting out uh, to win journalists a favor, uh, win the favor of journalists, uh, and even to corrupt them. When we talk about corrupting, are we talking about gratification on a financial level, or are we talking about giving them exclusives? What is what is your understanding of these journalists that were corrupted? Look, the, the, I, I interviewed a few of those who ran the inquiry into the SSA and its activities on these kinds of things um, after the fall of President Zuma, and they were very clear. Uh, there was an abuse of funds within the SSA and, and they, they can't name journalists, but they're quite clear that it is highly probable that among those paid improperly from their secret funds were journalists. Um, we, we, we don't know who those journalists were, but it seems there were payments. Um, so I, I, I suspect there were some journalists took payments, there were some who were ideologically motivated, there were those who just um, believed in 
in in the story that we're doing for ideological reasons and we're blind to other stories and then there was just incompetence it 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 it, it operated at many different levels uh, which is why I put so much attention on the culture and the practice in the newsroom. Because if you have the right practices and the right checks and balances and the right leadership from the editor, um, then you keep a hold on, on, on those things that lead individuals to go astray. Uh, but it was the, it was the gaps in the practice and the toxic culture at the Sunday Times. That allowed them for so long to get it so wrong. So let's, let's talk about newspapers as a whole having a narrative. So one looks at the establishment of the citizen in the seventies to try capture the, the English speaking white vote or to try influence them as to government policy from the national party. And we look at the establishment of the new age by the Guptas in a very similar vein to try project good news out to the public at large in respect of what the, the African National Congress is doing as a government. And one looks at the massive advertising revenue that the Sunday Times at one stage was receiving from government when they had the career section and most of the jobs advertised came from government and that contributed significantly towards their bottom line. Is that in itself showing that newspapers are created or can be swung to a certain narrative from a financial perspective? And then how does that differ to a reporter being captured individually? Um, yes, it's, uh, uh, re reporters can easily be influenced by their sources, uh, by the people they're talking to, by their own beliefs, but you're meant to have a double-checking, balancing process under editors who scrutinize the stories to try and ensure journalists are not misled as individuals. Um, so, but what, what, what we have is certain outlets and certain newspapers. And at that time, uh, SABC, uh, not so much now, but then, uh, where they were upfront about the fact that they were pursuing a particular party partisan agenda. SABC under Claudi Mozzoledi were clear they were doing that. They're not entitled to do that because they're a public broadcaster. But the Guptas are allowed to start a newspaper that takes a point of view and pursues a particular political interest. They're entitled to do that. Um, and at least they were clear on where they stood and what they did. Um, independent newspapers, I think, is very clear now that they're there to serve the whims of an owner who uses it for his own uh, personal business and and, and uh, personal ends, um, we know where they're coming from. The reason the Sunday Times is so interesting is because it fell into those groups of newspapers that say we're about professional, independent, non-partisan journalism. Uh, but that fell down, and that's why it's more interesting to ask why they fell down than those newspapers who deliberately went on that path knowingly and consciously and openly. So I think that's a very important factor that you brought up. And we've seen the emergence of a lot of independent investigative journalist units like Abu Bungane, Scorpio from Daily Maverick. And, and these organizations don't seem to be bound by the same financial criteria as other editors would be bound at other newspapers because their, their form of, of revenue and their funding model differs significantly. So do you believe that 
a, a group like the independent newspapers or the Sunday Times or the New Age or the citizen of, 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 of past would have structured their stories to benefit their funders, whereas now because you have an independent funding for investigative journalism, you no longer have that influence taking place. Or are these independent um, journalists and investigative groups also at risk of capture? Um, you raise very important points. Um, um, you know, when when newspapers, for example, were strong and rich and making money, maybe until about 10 years ago, then they could withstand pressure from advertisers. And there were times when the government threatened or, with, or actually withdrew advertising from the Sunday Times because they didn't like what they were doing. And the Sunday Times um, um, uh, a decade ago was strong enough to say, that's fine. That's fine. We can live without your advertising. And, in fact, you probably need us as much as we need you. And, and certainly that government advertising came back over time. The problem is that as the traditional media ran into financial trouble um, um, over the last couple of decades, but particularly in the last decade, that meant advertisers became that much more powerful and they had to do much more to win over and keep advertising. And I, and I, and I ran through stories in my books of, of in my books of, of editors grappling with the financial pressures and grappling with the pressure from advertising. So yes, we have this new model um, of invest of specialist investigative units, um, such as Amamugani and Oxpeckers, and a whole lot that have been started across the African continent, in fact, um, which are funded by um, donors, by foundations, and philanthropists and rich individuals. And at first, there was great skepticism about it, but what we're seeing, interestingly is that it's bringing some of the best, it's bringing a new wave of really interesting investigative journalism that is uh, freed from the pressures of advertisers. That doesn't mean that they're freed from the pressures of their funders. Um, um, so, you know, or wherever you get money, there are, there, there are, there are pressures uh, that can be brought to bear on you. But it's certainly proving to um, uh, create a much richer and more interesting um, and more independent journalism than we're seeing from outlets under huge financial pressure. So it's a very interesting new development. Um, it, it's a sort of irony that um, the most reliable um, f business model for investigative journalism now is uh, the non-profit philanthropic model. It's, it, and, and that's a big switch from where we were um, even five years ago when we thought it, 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 uh, it, a commercial model gave us the best investigative journalism. So, so that takes me to a very fascinating point. The one part about your book, book that absolutely blew my mind was the Gupta emails and how – the Gupta emails are going to be analyzed and packaged and reported on. And herein lay a problem for the investigative journalist, and that was funding. So they looked for another form of funding to enable this whole process to happen. Maybe you can take us through that and talk about the businesswoman that got involved. Um, yes, well, what happened um, was when they got this huge... 
So, so let me put it in this context first. We have a new phenomenon over the last five years um, of the leak of masses and masses of data because it's digital and it can all be on a hard drive. You know, uh, it used to be that you'd get a document or two or a file of documents um, or a dossier of documents from a source. Or a dossier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but what what you can get now is a, is a hard drive, and in this case with a few hundred thousand emails. But the, the skills required to find the stories in that mass of data are immense. Um, so it's a new set of skills that investigative journalists have had to um, learn and take on board. Um, in this case, when, when Daily Maverick and Amma Bulgani got them, they knew they needed funding um, to protect the sources, to protect themselves. They actually wanted to all go uh, overseas. Uh, they were going to go to Ireland um, to work and produce the stories because they were also scared they would get stopped. So their plan was to go overseas, to spend two or three months writing up all the stories, and then they could do a controlled release uh, in a way that couldn't be stopped if they were in South Africa and subject to harassment or raids or prosecution or civil action or whatever that could stop them. They went to... Um, um, a very well-known businesswoman uh, who was supporting Daily Maverick, who was very outspoken on corruption. You probably know the name, Magda Wierzyski, very hard to pronounce a Polish name, um, who agreed to give them the funds uh, to do that. Um, but to cut a long story short, um, she let them down very badly. She dumped them and uh, uh, put out the information that led other newspapers um, to get ahead of them and beat them on the story. And um, I deal a lot with the ethics of her behavior um, and, 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 and the extent to which she in, endangered or possibly endangered the sources by putting the information out uh, herself. That must have been one of the biggest leaks impacting directly in South Africa of all time. One one knows about the Assange type um, reporting where they analyze data breaches worldwide. And we've seen a lot of data breaches in respect of tax havens and places where people register shelf companies, etc. Whether it's Panama, whether it's the Caymans, whether it's the Seychelles, etc. But would you rate the Gupta's the Gupta email? Um, data leak has been one of the biggest changes in journalism in South Africa and and having a massive contribution towards the reporting on a subject that people were always talking about but didn't actually have the empirical evidence of. Yes, yes. So, um, so you're absolutely right. It's certainly the biggest data leak in this country because where we had lots of leaks before and even ones with major impact, then... Um, um, nothing of this scale. Um, but if you talk an impact, I think you could only compare it to one or two stories in South African uh, history. Um, one thinks mostly of the info scandal um, that helped. Um, uh, it didn't. It didn't change governments, but it ended uh, the, the careers of some politicians. Um, but on a but there's no question that uh, Gupta Leaks was world-class journalism and massive in its impact. And that was recognized when they won um, uh, 
the the Shining Light Award at the Global Investigative Journalism Conference last year. Well, they shared the first prize for that because, you know, I think that's an indication of what a big and important and powerful story it was. But it's very much part of a phenomenon we're seeing around the world of leaks of big data um, that led to Panama. We heard of Panama leaks. We had West Africa leaks. We have, of course, all the uh, WikiLeaks stuff. So this is a growing phenomenon that is busting open what's happening at banks, in suspicious legal firms, and certainly opening up how people move money around the world, avoid tax and uh, such and such things. I'm chatting to Anton Harbour, author of So For The Record. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to spend the last few minutes chatting to Anton and getting his insight as into what problems he identified, how those problems can be remedied, and what the future holds for journalism in South Africa. We'll be back after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're chatting to Anton Harbour about his brand new book, So For The Record, Behind the Headlines in an Era of State Capture. The book is already on the shelves at all good bookstores, and the official launch is this Thursday at 6 p.m. via the Jonathan Ball publishing page and the reading list. This book seems to to dovetail quite a bit about what Jacques Poe wrote in his book, The President's Keepers. Did, did you find it quite interesting when you were researching to find the same names, same things popping up? Um, y- yes. Um, I mean, it's been a fascinating process in general doing this investigation. And, um, and uh, fi- I mean, I did not expect when I set out this book that I would be dealing with brothels and honeypots and spooks and spies and uh, all sorts of things. I thought I was writing a book about journalism, but uh, what I came across was an extraordinary rich, which is part of the way I've reason I've written the book as a kind of thriller-like narrative, because I think it's got all the elements of a great thriller-type story. Um, but there's a lot of other work going on that's slowly exposing what happened under state capture, and uh, I must say some really excellent investigative work continues. So let's talk about what you learned during this journey. You've spent over two years in interviewing players from from all realms, actors within the spook world, journalists of old, journalists of new, and you must have come away either feeling inspired with this new form of journalism, with this new form of investigative um, units that have been established, or you may have come away disillusioned based on what you found and who you spoke to. So tell us about your journey in writing this book and what you think the future is of journalism in South Africa. Um, look, I certainly um, um, became deeply disillusioned with most of our traditional media and its capacity to deal with these stories and the financial pressures they are under that's affecting what they do. But inspired by the growth of these new independent investigative units um, that are doing just brilliant work uh, and very important work. Um, so... I certainly remain firmly of the view 
that good journalism is more important than ever, that this country produces good and bad journalism, and we, when we get it right, we're world class. No question of it, and we've got some fantastic journalists, investigative in other words, other, who, who just do such important work. There's no question that a lot of what you see um, rolling out now um, journalists have played a key role in what they've published. So last week's arrests that you talked about at the beginning of this of this show, you know, Peter Louis Myberg's book that looked at Aisma Khashule's empire in the free state was was the beginning of the expose of a lot of the things that led to last week's arrest. So what it really drives home is two points. One, the importance of good journalism to the functioning of our democracy and keeping uh, um, all those with power accountable. Um, um, and two, how, how, how good our journalism is when it is good and how much we need to do to encourage solid, professional, credible, trustworthy journalism and drive out those who abuse the profession to mislead and misinform and disinform. Does it frustrate you that there's still those that are adamant or arrogant enough to not own up to their part in this, in this whole narrative that played out the last 10 to 15 years? It's extraordinary. Uh, you know, as journalists, we've all made mistakes. We've all have stories we've regretted. But the key is to realize that and fix it quickly um, by apologizing and getting the story right. The extraordinary thing about the Sunday Times and the arrogance that, that took hold of them and their investigative journalist team was that, for example, in the SARS Rogue Unit story, they stuck with the story for more than two years. I think the number is they did about 40 stories, 46 stories, I think it might be. Um, that were just completely wrong and they just didn't carry the other side and the conflicting narratives and, uh, and they just went on and on and on. And, uh, there are still some journalists who stand by those stories, even though, um, commission, commissions of inquiry have proven otherwise. Those who, their sources such as KPMG and others have been discredited and have even admitted they got it wrong. It's completely astounded that they can stand by that story. But I guess that's what happened. Anton Harbour, the author of So For the Record, Behind the Headlines in an Era of State Capture. The book is available at all good bookstores. And the launch of the book will be on the reading list by Jonathan Ball Publishers this coming Thursday at 6 p.m. And Anton will be in conversation with his old friend and colleague, uh, investigative journalist and also newspaper veteran, Jacques Poe, the author of The President's Keeper. So that's this coming Thursday, 6 p.m. You can find out more about this book launch via the reading list or Jonathan Ball Publishers. Um, we are reporting remotely, as you are all aware, during this time of COVID. We haven't returned to our studios except for some of our hardworking studio engineers and the team at Chai FM. So we'd like to thank them. Oh, we've got Anton back. Anton, welcome back. Sorry, I'm not sure what happened there. No, we're not sure either, but this is, this is what we, we've endured for the last six months with COVID. Um, I'm used to sitting in studio with the guest and it's, it's been a, it's been a, a very big learning curve. So I was just 
advising our listeners about the, the book launch that's coming Thursday. It's a virtual book launch. It's via the reading list that Jonathan Ball publishes, and you're going to be in conversation with Jacques Poe. So in closing, I just want to ask you a question. The, the journalism in South Africa has taken one hell of a knock, and I stated that, and I made a broad statement, that it's been the t- last 10 to 15 years that we've actually seen specific narratives being played out and people manipulated. It all started with the vying for the, the leadership of the ANC and later the leadership of the country as a whole. What is your advice to future journalists and people who are studying journalism not to fall into the trap of a specific narrative and not to become biased through relationships that they may have? And what are the warning signs they need to look out for to ensure they don't get captured? I would say to young journalists that nothing is more important than your integrity and your independence. If you lose that, you lose everything. And you have to guard it with every word you write, every interview you had, every source you speak to. I would say that that um, you have to be strictly nonpartisan and open-minded about the fact that there are different and competing narratives. You have to accept that it's nice to have a simple, straightforward, a good and evil story where you nail the crooks, but you have to take on board a few things. One is that every story is complicated and conflicted and there are different versions and you have to know and understand all of that. But another critical thing is understand your own biases and prejudices. You can't deny they're there. You do better if you understand and acknowledge um, and uh, be transparent about them uh, because that's the first step towards being balanced and being fair. Anton Harbour, I thank you for your time today. It's been a very interesting conversation. I do apologize for the technical glitches. Unfortunately, we're living in very strange times, and these remote broadcasts are difficult because we're all sitting remotely. But I appreciate you taking the time, and I think it's an incredible book that you've written, and a lot can be taken away from it. I think the advice that you've given to the journalists who listen to the show and those who are studying journalism is critical. A lot of people made mistakes, myself included. But going forward, we have to be able to learn from this and we have to be able to take something away from this. And that's the fact that we all want to see the best for our country. And having hidden agendas, having narratives doesn't help the greater scheme of things. Absolutely, and Chad. Um, thank you very much um, uh, for this. Uh, I've really enjoyed it and thank you for your kind words about my book.